The following is a presentation of GalacticNetcasts.com. Before there was radio, TV, or podcasts, people gathered together to tell stories. These stories were meant to entertain or educate. It really drew people in and helped them forget their troubles of the day and experience something they've never imagined before or maybe illustrated something in a way that was more easily to mentally digest. This tradition has been reborn in the forms of not only RPGs and LARPs, but in console, card, and board games as ways to tell a story and bring you into the tale. We're going to be talking about news, kickstarters of games you should be aware of, and interview a guest about a topic that involves some aspect of storytelling. We welcome you to the Adventure Party. Hello and welcome to the 16th gathering of the Adventure Party on this, the 18th of July. I am your party leader, Brad Ludwig. We ask that you peace tie your swords, holster your blasters, and make sure you know the difference between a shuggeth and a deep one while you're gathered at the meeting table. Uh, as always, the second in command here at the Adventure Party is Glenn Bittner. He is a movie reviewer on the YouTube show The Movie Bunker and is the creator of the RPG Mistrunner. How are you this fine evening, sir? I'm quite well, Brad. Thank you for asking. <laughs> you, you, you sound like you, you took a tranquilizer before the show, sir. You're all right? Oh, just winding, fine. Just winding, fine. Winding down from a long day, I bet. Winding down. <laughs> I'd leave here and go paint some happy trees. There you go. Or some miniatures at least. Yes. <laughs> uh, our guest uh, today is game designer Kenneth Height of uh, Pelgrane Press. Uh, he's the, uh, uh, the Pelgrane Press uh, publishes uh, a number of RPGs, which include Alhut Trail, which I have played and, and enjoy the heck out of, Thirteenth Age, Gumshoe, uh, and, and much, much more. Uh, and uh, Kenneth has worked on the and uh, created the game settings uh, in Gumshoe for Trail of Cthulhu and Knights Black Agents. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know the more I. In the course of getting things ready for a show, I went down the rabbit hole and I looked at all this stuff that that is uh, that that you are a part of, sir, and it's it's fantastic, and I, I can't wait to talk to you about some of that. Uh, Kenneth has been working in the game industry for for quite some time, working with uh, games and game settings such as Star Trek, GURPS, and RuneQuest. He's also the author of Cthulhu, the Cthulhu Mythos-style books called Mini Mythos, with titles such as Where the Deep Ones Are, Antarctic Express, and Clifford the Big Red God. And I have to tell you, I put them in my uh, Amazon wish list as soon as I found them. Um, you know, uh, I have he, good night as the thoughts to that wish list, because that will be out this summer. Oh, wonderful. Series, yes. Okay, well, that's definitely going on the list. Uh, he, too, is also a podcaster, uh, along with his co-host, Robin Laws, of the podcast called Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Welcome, sir, to the Adventure Party. Thanks for uh, bringing me in and letting me uh, uh, join you for this expedition through our metaphorical dungeon of podcasting. <laughs> Really appreciate it. Uh, we are going to, uh, as we do in every show, we're going to roundtable uh, the different se uh, sections of our show, which include the game review, uh, gaming news, and uh, an interview with our guest. Uh, and uh, we're going to kick that off now 
with Glenn Bittner's review of an interesting game from North Star Games. Please tell us uh, tell us a bit about that. Ah, this game is called Evolution, um, and it's uh, kind of a resource in a, in a way, kind of a resource management type game where uh, each player you have to adapt your your species. You basically, you start with a couple of different species, and you're adapting them to the ecosystem. You want to make them uh, bigger, stronger, higher in numbers, stuff like that. But in order to do that, you have to keep them safe, and you also have to keep them fed. Um, the game plays really interesting, where you actually you draw cards, uh, depending on how many species you have, and then the first thing you're going to do is you're going to take one of those cards, and you're going to play it face down into a communal pot, basically. Because every card that is... All the cards are upgrades that you can give your, your species, but every card also has a number value to it, which will be used to determine how much food is at the watering hole each turn. And any creature that is not a carnivore has to get their food from the watering hole. Now, mm. then take the rest of your cards, and you can do things such as play them face up uh, to give your species different advantages. You might give yourself a long neck, meaning you can get more food. You might give yourself like a hard shell to protect yourself from carnivores, or you may even upgrade yourself mm. to a carnivore, where now... Instead of eating from the from wanting hole, you eat other player species. <laughs> okay. Happen to me too often in this game, um, <laughs> but you you have to manage everything because you can also make your your creatures bigger. Because if you're bigger, carnivores can't eat you as easily because a carnivore can only eat something smaller than it. Uh, you have to have make sure you have more numbers because the more numbers you have, the less likely you are to go extinct. Sure. Because if you if you hit zero on the number track, your species goes extinct. Um, you can also add more species if you want. So. It's all managing all these different things because the food is going to, at the beginning of the game, there's going to be more food than anyone, anyone can eat. Okay. And food is actually how you score points. Because every time you eat, you place this, you place your food in this little bag. At the end of the game, you total up how many food you have in your bag, and that's whoever is the most is going to win. Plus, you get bonuses for the population of your species and then uh, different traits as well. But food is where you're going to score the most of your points. It is it's a hoot. I, I like this game a lot. And I was really surprised when I first heard that North Star Games made it, because up until this point, North Star Games did party games. Uh, Their most well-known game is Wits and Wagers, hmm. which is basically a trivia kind of betting trivia game. And when this one came out, um, I actually had one of the guys who, who works for North Star came to our store and demoed it. He's actually friends of one of our one of my coworkers. And when I mentioned my surprise of them making it, he goes, yeah, goes, this is the kind of game that everyone who works in North Star Games plays and wants to make, but they made a part of the party game first because they knew that it would sell and would then let them have the ability to make a game like Evolution. So Okay, sure. Huh. But um it's uh it plays it plays pretty quickly once you understand the rules. Average play time is about an hour. Um it's two to six players. Um it's it's can be very competitive, although you do at times get a bit of cooperation amongst people where the carnivores will divvy up who they're going to eat. <laughs> <laughs> um, although carnivores can eat each other, and one trick too is if there isn't anything for a carnivore to eat, you might be eating your own species. Because if you have two species and your carnivore can't eat anyone else except your own other guy, oh. he'll eat your other guy. So you have to be careful because you might end up eating yourself into extinction. <laughs> so, okay. um, yeah, it's just it's a really neat game. It's got beautiful art on the cards too. Sorry about that. Um, so yeah, it's just it's it's a really fun game from a company that I wasn't expecting it from. Huh. Uh, how does it uh, compare to Urzupa, the other? I mean, sort of the the big amoeba in the evolutionary games uh, world. You know, I have not played that one. Oh. 
So, well, I haven't played this one, so here, <laughs> two halves of the um, locket, and we haven't been joined. And actually, that's I had someone ask me that exact question yesterday, and I just haven't been able to look that one up yet because it's been pretty hectic at work the last day and a half. Yeah, well, <laughs> no doubt. All right, so um, highly highly competitive, would you say in the in that hour? It, is, it gets. Is it a, it, it starts off, everyone's all friendly and nice, because everyone starts off as as uh, just an herbivore. You all eat the plants that are growing at the watering hole. But as soon as someone plays carnivore, all bets are off. Plus You're the off fact that then the carnivore, they're not going to contribute as little food as possible to the watering hole, because they sure. want people, they want everyone else to stay small and weak so they can just keep eating them. <laughs> so aside from having to run away from carnivores, you're also then competing for food like mad. So you want to get upgrades that let you get, like long neck lets you take extra food. And there's some things, there's like scavenger, which if the carnivore kills someone and eats them, you need to take an extra food out of the watering hole because you're scavenging the remains. So Ooh. competition for food becomes very fierce, even amongst the uh, the herbivores, because food the food supply dwindles. The, the bigger species get, the more they need to eat. Sure. Oh, okay. Wow, that sounds like a, a really... I, I, it doesn't sound like a beer and pretzels kind of a game, or, or would you classify it as really um, kind of... uh, more of a twigs and steaks? <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, Fair no, enough. I, I, I think it, it's casual enough because I mean, it's it depends how many people are playing. It can get kind of crazy. I played it with six, and that gets crazy because it's a lot of people to keep track of what their species is. Most people will be running one to three species. So even mm. if everyone's only running one, now you got to keep track of six different species plus all their upgrades, and most people are going to have two, so now you're talking 12 species with all their upgrades. So now it's like, okay, so you've got the guy who is size four, but because of this upgrade, he hunts at a size six, so i got to make sure my guy's bigger than a size six to not get eaten by you. But if I'm too big, this guy over here has all these upgrades to let him take extra food, so I won't be able to feed my guy, so he's going to die anyways. So maybe I'll focus on my other person over here. So it, there's a lot that a lot to keep track of. So if you have too many beers, I think you're going to miss out on everything that's going on. <laughs> so it's a survivalist resource uh, management game. Yes. Okay. Very interesting. All right. Well, thank you for that, sir. We're going to jump into the news here. Uh, Modifius to create games based on John Carter series of books. Uh, Modifius is going to be making a couple of new games based on John Carter, which was written by uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Uh, Modifius has announced two games based on the material, an RPG and a board game, and they will be releasing some collectible uh, miniatures uh, for the uh, RPG as well. Uh, John Carter, the role-playing game, is set for a Christmas 2015 release, so... Uh, just a few months away here. Uh, it will use the uh, the 2D20 light system, also used in Mutant Chronicles Infinity and the Conan RPGs. Uh, characters will be able to explore Barsoom, which is the Martian name for uh, Mars, as we call it on Earth, uh, from its deserts to its ancient cities. Uh, there will be stats for all the major characters from the books, and to help augment the RPG, there will be uh, the miniatures that I mentioned before, which are being released spring of 2016. Uh, now, also being released 
that spring of 2016 is John Carter Warlord of Mars, which is a board game that will allow the players to save Barsoom from all the uh, all evils, from scientists to ancient forces to other things. I like how they sinisterly put the dot, 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 other things. Uh, this uh, article was from Tabletop Gaming News. Now, um, I've had the opportunity to play the Conan RPG, which <clears throat> was uh, a lot of fun and very true to uh, the feel of, of, the, of the books. And uh, who here saw the uh, John Carter of Mars movie? Do I really have to admit that? <laughs> you don't have to if you don't want to. That's all right. Uh, Kenneth? Did, no, sadly, uh, I, or, or happily, I saw the trailer first, and so it was like, well, if you don't want me to see the movie, then I certainly don't want to see the movie. I mean, <laughs> that just seems fair, right, Disney? I mean, why would I question them? They edited the trailer, right? <laughs> you know, and, and their whole marketing story, originally it was uh, Princess of Mars, and then they changed gears and changed the title, and that was, <clears throat> at that point, I, you, you just well, kind of Because they, they right? figured that, Boys wouldn't want to see something called Princess of Mars, so they change it, and then no one saw it. Oh, it was just that was so, and it's it's a wonderful film, and directed by and okay, now we're turning into a movie review podcast, and I apologize for that, but Andrew Stanton is the guy who created uh, Finding Nemo, and he was the director of of this film, and it's it's a shame it got a bad rap. Uh, it was a lot of fun, but uh, going back to Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, it, it's kind of cool to see a company that already has the Conan property, and uh, I don't know if you uh, gentlemen have had an opportunity to to partake of the Conan RPG, but it's uh, to me it's very comforting to know that a company that has done uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs right uh, is going to be picking up this property as well and, and adapting Conan it. Conan is not Edgar Rice Burroughs, though. Conan is Robert E. Howard. Oh! Oh, my God! Yes, you're... Oh, I know. Now, now I feel terrible. I mean, it's it's still sword fights and, and brunettes. So, I mean, you're half right. But, uh, <laughs> see now, look at uh, see now. I'm now I'm now I'm embarrassed. All right, um, but in my defense, their their styles are not dissimilar. <laughs> I'm trying to redeem myself. Here. They're both dead. <laughs> well, that, well, there's that too. Uh, <laughs> Well, um, it, to me, the a uh, adaptation of, of Conan is 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 so solid. Um, you know, magic is not as wondrous as as D and D magic. Um, it, it it does stay true uh, to Howard's vision. Uh, so it's kind of cool to see them getting the chance to do something like that with this property. Um, yeah, I mean, Modifius has generally done a pretty good job with their various licensed properties all the way across the board. So I assume okay. as long as whoever the um, uh, the sort of lead designer or whatever has got a, a genuine love and understanding of the Barsoom novels, I think it'll probably be you know just as successful as the other Modifius stuff uh, has been in terms of recap recapturing that uh, original spark. Sure. Um, uh, do you know uh, who the designer is? Uh, just a company. I just know, I just know the company, but let me check. Uh, I do have a link from the uh, company from Modifius, and I want to see if they mention. 
No, they don't. They don't seem to have a, or they're not mentioning if they have a designer assigned to it and who it well, is. If it's coming out in Christmas, the designer is already. You know, uh, well, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> that's not something be, you put together in the month. Pretty much done with it, actually. Uh, <laughs> I should, I should say, yeah, it should be uh, at the editing and printing phase at this point if they're going to get it out. You're absolutely yeah, right. Or at the very least, in the you know uh, art and everything else phase. Um, sure. Yeah, no, I'm sure that they've got someone, and then they just didn't put it in the press release for some reason. Hmm. Uh, you know, foolish economy of space, perhaps. Anyway, perhaps. but the but the larger point is that um, I, they've, they've done a good job on their other licensed properties, so this would be one of those that if you're interested in John Carter, give it a look and see if it appeals to you, right? Yeah, and, no, absolutely. And again, planet story, planetary romance and sword and sorcery are not so far apart that... Uh, you can't make some judgment based on how well they did Conan because at least it means they're not just simply porting the same thing back and forth. They're paying some attention to the to the nature of the world. So yeah, yeah. gosh, you'd hope so. <laughs> if it's gonna be if it's gonna be successful, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Glenn, you have have you ever had a chance to to check out the Conan RPG? I have not checked out a Conan RPG since the eighties. Oh. <laughs> Fair enough. Three but Conan I, RPGs ago. <laughs> I uh, I have uh, looked a bit at something else from Modiphius, which is the Octum Cthulhu, so World World War Two type Cthulhu stuff with Nazis and all that. So, oh, one of the See. people at work uh, has picked up everything available for it and is planning on running a campaign. Nice. Course, at a game store, we're always planning on running campaigns that we never do. <laughs> True enough. Um. That, that, and that kind of sounds like that would be uh, in your wheelhouse, kind of, the Octum Cthulhu. Yeah, um, that uh, Sarah Newton, I guess, is sort of uh, doing a lot of the writing for that. She's a good friend and a, and a, a fine uh, designer and researcher. And um, I wrote a little tiny bit in the Keeper's Guide for Octum Cthulhu uh, because Chris Birch wanted me to explain why you don't blame the Nazis on the Cthulhu mythos and how to handle... The sort of presence of two very different kinds of evil in your in your horror role playing game, and I did it like two pages out of 180, so I I, I just barely am, am in the book at all. But uh, Chris like it, and I thought that it was the sort of thing that's important to say because otherwise you end up saying, oh well, it's not the Nazis' fault. It was Neil Lothotep that did that, and it's like no, it kind of was the Nazis' fault. They were horrible, horrible people, and you can't let them off the hook just by blaming you know Haster or somebody. <laughs> <laughs> True enough. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Well, uh, we are going to uh, extend our news here a little bit further. Uh, we're going to have Ryan Murphy take over. Uh, he is the contributor to Galactic Netcasts, who offers us the Galactic Gaming News, and he covers more of the digital beat of gaming, and he has a brand new update for us. So take it away, Ryan. Welcome to Galactic Gaming News for the week of July 14th. I'm your host, Ryan Murphy. Let's take a look at the headlines from out of this world. First up, we have some sad news with the passing of Nintendo President Satoru Iwata at the age of 55. It's been a somber start to the week with the news of Iwata's passing, released Sunday evening. The fact that he took such a hands-on approach to being president of Nintendo, I think, made this a terrible loss for the industry. And the internet really does agree with every corner of it mourning in some fashion. With stories surfacing of his early work on Earthbound and Kirby, to his coding work done while president on Super Smash Bros. Melee, one thing is clear, this man loved video games and loved to share them with the world. 
A lot has been said about this loss, and I doubt I can say anything better than what has already been said, but I will read one quote of his that best describes his thought process and probably what made him such a great person for the industry. On my business card, I am a corporate president. In my mind, I am a game developer, but in my heart, I am a gamer. Truly a sad loss, and will be felt for some time with a lot of quotes coming out of Nintendo and other higher-ups in the at the company just really it, they've been hit really hard by this loss and I know that uh, Nintendo will do this guy proud and, and gamers will hopefully do him proud so Futurama is back in video game form while a new season of the hit show is not in the cards we'll at least be able to experience this universe again in a new mobile game the official Facebook page for the TV show announced a new game called Release the Drones their website gives little info on the title but says good news everyone Good news, everyone. I can't do it. A Futurama mobile game is on the way. Get ready for shiny robots, evil forces, and new adventures. Finally, the Doctor invades LEGO Dimensions. I'm a Doctor Who newbie, but a fan nonetheless. As a general geek, you'd think Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, Ninja Turtles, or Portal would have me salivating for LEGO Dimensions, but it turns out it was the TARDIS and Peter Capaldi that would have me wanting this game. While I'm actually more interested in LEGO sets over the games, but still, great news. With the Doctor Who LEGO Dimensions set, you can play as Capaldi's Doctor, voiced by him too, and swap skins to look like all previous incarnations of the Doctor. No word if there is VO from previous actors, but this is still rad news. This has been Galactic Gaming News, a weekly segment for Galactic Netcasts. For everything I do, go to ryanmurphy.ca or follow me on Twitter at rmurphy. If you're interested in more video game goodness, be sure to check out the Gamers In at gamersinpodcast.com, recorded every week live on amove.tv, Wednesday, 7.30 p.m. EST. Each week, Jocelyn Moffat and I run down the games we've been playing, chat industry news, and take questions or comments from listeners like you. Thanks for listening. All right, thanks for that report, Ryan. appreciate it. Uh, next up, we're going to get into the Kickstarter spotlight, and we are going to recap last week's pick, which was Brawl which was an updated cheap-ass uh, card game. And, uh, Glenn, that was your pick, so uh, give us a little bit of insight on that. So uh, when we looked at it last week, they still had a bit to go to their goal of 30000 They have now passed their goal. They're at 35361 they got five days left. Nice. Um, just quick recap, Brawl is a super-fast two-player fighting game where you, have, uh, you are trying to win base cards by playing more hits on your side of the table and playing blocks to stop hits from your opponent. And when I say it's super quick, I'm talking a game takes under two minutes. It's a no fooling around game. No and fooling watching, around. So, and, and um, If you get a chance to, uh, if you've seen in our show notes, you can click in there and uh, you can see the, the listing for Brawl and watch the video. Watching the, the two gentlemen play the, the game. Uh, the two gentlemen play the game and it is... It's moving, so it's something where you need to pay attention to detail, and uh, if if you don't, you're you're gonna you're gonna lose. So you only have five days left. Yeah, and, and for the cost of, of what it takes to get in, twenty one dollars gets you two different brawl decks, which is the minimum that you need to play. So twenty one dollars to get in on, on 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 a game that's that's next to nothing. That's that's really cool, and uh, if you jump in at uh, what is it? You can get all six decks at fifty one at fifty one dollars, and uh, combined between they had a a fifty two dollar, which was the early bird uh, 
there's what 428 backers uh, at that level uh, to to get all six games. So people were really hot to get this game again. Um, did because this is a re-release. Uh, we talked about this. This is a, this is a re-release of, of the cheap oh, yeah. ass game. And yep. um, I'm trying to think. Uh, I had a question, and now now it's gone. Um, was it the same structure as? I mean, this is just just a re-release. There's no updates. It's just a re-release of of the game. Correct. Just a re-release, as far as I as far as I have been able to uh, ascertain so far. I probably, if it's like most releases, they probably updated the artwork. Sure. Sure. Yep. But that's about it. It's pretty much the the same game. Okay. And uh, yeah, they. They passed it by, which is which is very good news. And you know, for for a name like Cheapass, who has established themselves uh, with uh, making wonderful wonderful games uh, at at a low cost, uh, you know it's it's going to be good. And because it's a re-release, you know that this has been thoroughly tested and and appreciated and well loved. So uh, it's great to see that they they surpassed their goal, and this is this is definitely going to happen. And uh, it will be. Released the estimated delivery. Sorry, is uh, January of 2016. So right around the corner here, in the grand scheme of things. All right. Well, uh, we're going to talk about our uh, spotlight, our new spotlight, which is called the Voting Game, which is it's a party game. So we we've got a little bit of a uh, a theme going there. Uh, it is. It's billed as a game where you find you find out who your friends really are. Uh, to me, it, it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of, uh, at least in the packaging structure of uh, Cards Against Humanity. Um, it's a kind of a simple black box, but inside of it are questions that you ask the group. It can play up to ten players, which I thought was. Uh, let me just double check that. I it says plays up to ten, but I love the asterisk of the "Who are you kidding? You don't have ten friends." <laughs> yes. <laughs> now the box comes with questions, and it comes with numbers. So what ends up happening is the question card is flipped over, and it asks a question such as, uh, "Who would survive the longest zombie apocalypse?" And then everybody. Uh, face down, puts down the player number. So everybody is given a number, and then everybody puts down their number card as to who they think would, uh, in this particular case, survive uh, the longest in a zombie apocalypse. And then uh, it's scored by how many times you particularly win each question. Uh, It's really, really kind of a, a neat concept. And they've already got uh, expansions. They have a NSF uh, NSFW expansion. Uh, there is a fill in the blank expansion, and there is a create your own, which is 80 blank cards that you can make up to 80 more questions. Uh, to uh, maybe it's uh, more inside jokes for your group or things like that. It, it puts the control in your hands to expand the game, uh, which is really kind of a neat concept. Uh, 25 bucks gets you in uh, at the ground floor to get the just the uh, original, the core game of uh, voting, uh, and uh, $50 gets you all three expansions. 
which is really kind of cool. And if you decide to go big, you can uh, spend $90 and get two copies of the core game and uh, two copies of each of the three expansions, which is, is really kind of cool. Uh, looking at this right now, their goal is uh, $7,500. And with 30 days to go... <laughs> Uh, they're at 4,000, just about 4,500, so they are more than halfway there. Uh, so this looks like something that's going to ab absolutely happen. So I, based on what I've seen here, uh, it looks like this would be a very, very fun game. Uh, it doesn't take too long to play, and, uh, it's kind of like, and I know you don't like Cards Against Humanity, Glenn. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know, uh, Kenneth, if you had an opportunity of, to, to play Cards Against Humanity. Oh, yeah, I've um, played it. And it, it's a game where really nobody wins. You all lose a piece of your soul. Uh, but uh, it's kind of uh, kind of a neat approach to, to, to doing a party game like that that can include a, a lot of people and, and, and be entertaining. Uh, would you, based on that short... <laughs> Overview that I gave it. it would is that sound like something that you guys would would play if you were at a at a at a party? Well, I mean, if I'm at a party, I'm there to socialize. So if everyone else is playing, you know, their you know Cards Against Humanity or or that or Werewolf or whatever, you do it because sure. that's why you're there, right? That's just <laughs> politeness. Would I break it out and say, "Hey guys, let's do this instead of drink and have fun"? No, of course not. But you know, um, uh, one is not always in charge. That's what I've found out in this life. <laughs> That is very true. That is very true. Um, Glenn, what say you? Uh, yeah, if, if people wanted to play it, I would play it with them, but this is... I'm not... I, I would probably would enjoy this more than Cartoon's Mandy because there's at least a little bit of room for creativity, which is okay. my biggest point with Cartoon's Mandy is that there's no... It's just simply, oh, okay, I will play Auschwitz because that's offensive. There, I'm done. And this, you know, in this, you actually you put you might have to put a little more thought into it. And I can see there actually being more discussion after the answers are revealed with the person who's like, "Why, why do you think she would last in the zombie apocalypse? She'd be the first one to die. You are all idiots." <laughs> yeah, that As could be. Uh... Someone just going and crying, you know, because you know, because they actually know a child with ass cancer, and that's not really that funny. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd give you that. I'd give you that. Um, yeah, I could see that making or breaking uh, vote uh, the voting game, making or breaking some friendships, uh, for sure. Uh, and it's going to be an interesting. You know, we all have uh, our own personal view as to you know what we can and can't do and what we're all about. And to get that chance to see yourself through somebody else's eyes um, could be a wonderful experience, or leave you uh, curled up in a ball crying in a, in a corner of the room. So. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and, and right now, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people are trying to be the next Cards Against Humanity. They, they want to be the yeah. game that everyone wants to play and everyone wants to own and they can sell, you know. And they want to be the guys who can say, hey, you know what, we're going to sell poop in a box and people are going to buy it and people will buy it <laughs> and we'll sell out. They, every, these people, they want to be that next, you know, that next person who can do that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Cards Against Humanity. effort, maximum reward. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the American dream, isn't it? 
gather. I mean, it's a lot, I think it's a lot of people's dreams, actually. <laughs> I mean, there, there, you have the people who who really do work hard, but a lot of people, if it's the, hey, if you could put in five hours of work and get a million dollars, would you do it? Most people are going to say, yeah, I'll go. Well, I don't know, five hours, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like all at once or just spaced out over a week? <laughs> what are we talking about? Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe a week. Yeah, all right, maybe. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk. Just send me the send me the pro, those prospectus, and then we'll get we'll we'll get on that. And, and that, that's the thing too is you have a, they want to be that because some people are people who haven't worked in the game design field at all. Just think that you know, oh, I make a game and I'll just make a million dollars. No, that's not most game designers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, Cards Against Humanity sort of managed to, you know, strike while the iron was hot. It had a really great graphic look, which is, I think, a, a yes. big part of it. Um, and it managed to ride that sort of viral wave really, really well. So, you know, regardless of its merits or demerits as a thing you do with friends, allegedly, um, you <laughs> have to look at the way that they handled the actual marketing production. Oh, all market, the professional marketing great. All the professional hard part. You know, to me, of game design, the part where you get your game out in front of people's eyeballs, yeah. make people talk about it, that's something that, you know, when it happened, it wasn't just a flash in the pan. They're still, you know, cranking along. I mean, uh, Max and the guys are in Chicago, so I've, I've met them, and, and uh, I've got friends who are, like, you know, in business relationships with them. So it's, uh, you know, they're still, you know, moving along, and they're, and they're trying to move from strength to strength. Uh, but there's plenty of people that I know that who have been handled or who have been handed uh, massive success and managed to piss that away because they had no idea what to do with it. And that, oh, yeah. I think, is the real difference, right, as to who's going to stick around. It's not entirely your your game design chops, although it, it helps that uh, Cards Against Humanity isn't obviously broken, uh, possibly because there's barely a mechanic to it, as you alluded to earlier. But, yeah. um, but the ability to uh, present it, sell it, market it, uh, expand on it and reinforce it. Those are things that are not easy to do either, and so they deserve all the credit for that and for you know trying to stay in the field and you know come back to it. So, you know, it's it's not an either or. But just like after Magic came out, like you said, you know, everyone wanted to be the next Magic cards. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you got you know 150 cards with crappy art on them, and surely people will trade them. Uh, that didn't happen either, and so I think a lot of people are looking at that sort of um, adult party game space that Cards Against Humanity uh, pioneered or re-pioneered because it had been around a lot before in other games, but pioneered for this century at least. And um, uh, they're saying, well, can we get into that? Is that space like Magic turned out to be um, a space that's big enough for other huge successes? Or is it going to be something where, no, there's just one game and a bunch of little sort of orbiting wastes of everyone's valuable time? But You'd feel like an idiot if you had the next uh, Yu-Gi-Oh or Pokemon, and you were like, "Nope, I'm pretty sure that category's full. We're never going to make another, uh, you know, after Magic, no more card games, uh, yeah. no more CCGs, right?" So, you know, I think it just makes sense to to give it a shot and see what happens. And again, I oh, think yeah. you're right that that, you know, seeing each other, seeing yourself as other CS is not a bad, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of. Um, sub-theme or sub-harmonic or whatever, the thing that it does is it actually gets people to have to, because of the rules, say, say what you think of me, which is what everyone wants to actually talk about is, tell me about me. <laughs> no, that's, that's very true. And I'm assuming if you're playing... If you are playing this game in a party atmosphere and alcohol is involved, I'm sure that things 
will probably get very truthful and very real uh, fairly quickly, especially well, as the evening goes on. It could happen, that's for sure. <laughs> well, just watch one of the videos where they have drunk voting game with beer and board games. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Well, I, you know, now I would, I, I, I'm so glad that we got you on the show, Kenneth. Uh, I had originally reached out to uh, Pelgrane Press to uh, talk about uh, I had uh, I had a few friends that, uh, uh, one, one in particular, who had never really run a system before and heard about Gumshoe and what it was about and that really appealed to her uh, because it really focused more on the mystery, at least through her description, through the mystery, yeah. and not so much the mechanics of of the dice rolling. And um, right. while it is a part of very it. minimal, so you know, you so. you, uh, it's a game that rewards uh, story planning and story thinking about uh, more than it rewards mechanical mastery, just because there's so few mechanics to master. Sure. Right? So and you I, wind up spending your extra cycles, you know, writing, uh, you know, adventures and thinking about how do I present this clue in an interesting way. No, and I, I have to give props to any game uh, with Trail of Cthulhu. I know, I can't remember the exact skill name, but it's basically run away, fleeing, fleeing. Yes, yes. <laughs> which in that mythos is a very valuable skill, and you should probably have a lot of points in that. And you can buy it for half cost. Yes. <laughs> so it's like uh, almost like charisma in the uh, in the hero champions uh, sort of universe. Uh, yeah, well, Excellent. charisma is the dump stat. Fleeing is actually useful. Well, yeah, that that's the you know that's the the other thing there is that's far more useful uh, as a skill. Um, so uh, as as I had reached out and um, it, we had some I had some back and forth with them and they mentioned that uh, we should be speaking with you and I, I dug into your career a bit more and um, I got to say wow you've done so many uh, wonderful things and and have been a part of a, a lot of great projects and uh, you. Uh, just wrapped up um, the Dracula dossier for, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, for Knights Black Agents. Um, would you tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll kind of get back into into Gumshoe. Sure. Um, the Dracula dossier is well. It began as two books, and now I think it's nine or ten because of the stretch goals and other foolishness. But the core of it is the two books, and one book is Dracula Unredacted, which is Bram Stoker's novel with all of the sources and methods and uh, information put back into it that reveals that British intelligence tried and failed to recruit a vampire in 1894 and everything went wrong. And Bram Stoker was brought in to write the after action report and when he turned it in they were like well we can't publish all of that because it will reveal what we did so they cut out a bunch of it and then published the novel as disinformation. Oh, that's so beautiful. This novel then sits in British intelligence uh, archives, and over the years, um, over the decades, MI6 keeps coming back to that well. Uh, and what's called Operation Edom, which is the attempt to recruit Dracula, um, gets reactivated in 1940 because they want to bring Dracula into World War II to stop Hitler from taking over Romania. So in 1940, the SOE team goes into Romania, and one of the survivors annotates that first draft of Dracula. Then in 1977, there's a mole hunt because British secrets are showing up in Romania, and they're like, who, how can there be a back channel we don't know about between Britain and Romania? And Operation Edith was like, oh, that may be because of the immortal Romanian who was wandering around London with mind control powers. That probably could be 
what happened. And so Edom is tasked with finding the mole, and one of the analysts on the mole hunt annotates that same first draft of Dracula. Oh. And then in 2005, after 7-7, uh, uh, the British intelligence community is like, literally anything is on the table. We've got to stop terrorism from hitting Britain again. And uh, Edom is like, well, if anything is on the table, we have to know a monstrous killer that really hates Muslims uh, because Dracula, of course, spent his whole actual lifetime fighting against the Ottoman Turks. So that, that could work. So they reactivate Dracula and point him at Al-Qaeda and ISIS and other uh, terror groups, which, of course, has huge collateral damage and is a terrible idea. And in 2011, enough information gets out that another analyst elsewhere in MI6 finds the copy of the Dracula dossier, finds the copy of Stoker's first draft and annotates it, and then she disappears. Oh. And so now you, the players, have this document, which is the full story of Dracula with three generations of MI6 analyst annotations in it. From that, you can then follow those clues anywhere. Oh. And the director's handbook, which is the companion book to Unredacted, is where all the clues lead. So we have... Uh, I, I think we on the back says 64, but it's actually more than that. Uh, NPCs, and any one of them might be innocent, they might be an Edom asset, or they might be a minion of Dracula. And you, the players, pick, we want to go investigate that uh, seismologist, because he sounded weird in the annotation. And when you meet him, the GM, the director, is, is what we call him in Nice Black Agents, decides, well, is this guy going to be on the level? Is he going to be a, uh, still working as part of Edom? Or is he going to be a Dracula asset? a Dracula minion, and then that changes the nature of the game. So it's an improvisational collaborative oh. campaign. There's no, you know, there, there's no preset, you will do this and then this and then this. Sure. The players pick what they do. The players may say, we'll just go find Castle Dracula and hunt him down there, because we know he's got to be hanging out there. there. There's a big page, there's actually a dozen pages or so in the, in the book, how to find Castle Dracula. Which of the nine possible castles might it be? What's there? <laughs> Is it active? Is it not active? Is it a tourist trap? Is it you know, a desolate ruin. And mm -hmm. you the, then get to decide all of those things and also decide while you're doing it, well, what's between you and Dracula's castle? Is it just the, you know, the uh, the Ruvari Sigani, his, his ancient servitors? Is it Slovakian mafia guys? Is it the Romanian secret police? Who else is trying to stop you from doing this? Meanwhile, of course, Operation Edom wants to know what happened to its copy of the Dracula dossier and it's hunting you. <laughs> so you've got basically two sets of people who will just basically legitimately kill you, and you have to follow clues in order to stay ahead of both of them. And that's sort of the, the game, and it becomes, ideally, sort of a big, uh, you know, sort of world-defining campaign for your Knights Black Agents game. And uh, at the very least, it gives you an excuse to go reread Dracula, which is always good as far as I'm concerned. Wow. That, I, you know, some of the best, in my experience, some of the best... Stories, some of the best games that you'll you will ever experience, as long as the 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 storyteller or the director or the game master is passionate about that particular historical event, is making a fictional setting that uses the truth or at least the perceived truth of events, and working you as a fictional care as a group of fictional characters into that and well, navigate that describe my entire career or at least I, my entire non star trek career yeah well, exactly and, and looking you know especially at um, your love of of lovecraft 
and uh, the work that you've you've done in that in that mythos, uh, especially you know when you get to like Trail of Cthulhu and things like that. Uh, it, it looks like that's really, really in your wheelhouse, and and it sounds you know based on your description, um, you really just go down that rabbit hole and give a lot of of options for people to to explore a lot of 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 those different worlds and and or, or mythos in the case of uh, of Lovecraft. That's that's wonderful. Um, now one of my questions is especially now we're getting back into Gumshoe. Um, when you when you created Trail of Cthulhu, uh, it, it mentions that uh, it, it's it's licensed from Chaosium. Uh, how do you navigate something like that when somebody owns basic? And I'm going to make an assumption here that they basically own sort of the the, the game versions of of HP Lovecraft. Or how how does that work? How do you license from Chaosium, and what are you particularly licensing from them? To, well, to I have to, I have not seen what their license is with Arkham House and with the other creators. Um, okay. So what we've got is a safe harbor, where. Because we've licensed Call of Cthulhu, we can use anything in the mythos that Call of Cthulhu is used in the mythos. Okay. We can use anything they've invented for, say, Mass of Nirlathotep or um, uh, Escape from Minzimuth or any of their other really great Chaosium products. We can then use that in uh, Trail of Cthulhu products if we decide we want to. So we don't have to go back to Brian Lumley if we decide we want to put uh, something in because Chaosium has already gone to Brian Lumley, right, in theory. Sure. And okay. they've got, you know, stats for his monsters and whatever in their books, and so we can just go and take it. And so when you work, because Lovecraft is in the public domain, yep. um, Robert E. Howard is in the public domain, parts of Robert Block's early stuff are in the public domain, August Orleth is not in the public domain, which is what will catch you, because he contributed a lot more to the what we think of as the mythos than a lot of people remember. Uh, like, Biaki are his. If you use a Biaki, you're, you know, taking Derleth. You're not doing Lovecraft, so... Okay. Um, or at least if you call it that. Um, the, uh, but, but what going through uh, Chaosium does is it lets us just not have to worry about what's in public domain and what's not and just do whatever we want to do as long as Chaosium has already done it in a supplement somewhere. And since they've been doing you know, supplements for 30-odd years, uh, yeah. going on four years, I guess now, um, yeah, they've, <laughs> they've, got, uh, they've, they've got lots of stuff that uh, we can uh, borrow from and sneak into our game and maybe give it our little half-turn and uh, put our spin on it. But, uh, you know, in theory, you can write your own uh, Lovecraft-based role-playing game and, and have a great time with it, but getting a, a sub-license from Chaosium, I think, is, A, just kind of polite because they did sort of pioneer the whole field and it's the whole reason anyone's buying your game in the first place. And, B, in our case, at least, it does make, you know, creative decisions a lot broader and a lot more open because we have so much more to choose from than we would if we were just trying to, you know, run in that same little path of uh, def definitively public domain stuff. Sure. Okay. Um, now I, I want to kind of ask a more a more personal question. Um, knowing that that you do appreciate H.P. Lovecraft a great deal, and in hearing you speak of Lovecraft, you know, you know the mythos. Uh, I would I'd be willing to bet inside and out. Um, what is it about Lovecraft's work? Um, or, or the mythos in general that, that appeals to you so much? Well, I mean, there's, there's sort of a lot of different levels of... Uh, I mean, part of it is what you were talking about, about the notion of real history being tangled up in fictional events. Sure. I mean, that's great fun, whether you're you know, talking about your uh, you know, role-playing game campaign, my Dracula dossier tied up with actual World War II 
whether it's um, uh, uh, the Flashman novels, whatever it happens to be. And Lovecraft, of course, said um, every supernatural story, every weird story works best as a hoax. Works best if you put so much realism around it that when you stick the one weird thing in, people don't twig to it immediately and then it really messes with them. And that is what I like about the mythos is that the mythos is by definition interweaved with reality. The whole point of the mythos is to reveal to us the actual truths of our reality, that our history is longer than we understand, that our world is less important than we understand, that uh, our humanity is uh, less important than we understand. But that all of these come through a scrim of real archaeology, real history, real paleontology, as real as you can get. I mean, Lovecraft was working with cutting-edge science when he was writing stuff and then putting the myth in behind it. And I think that the chance to do that is what makes it you know, so much fun. So first of all, you have that, uh, that, that nature of the interplay between the real and the fictional in a way that, say, you don't with Tolkien or with um, uh, Forgotten Realms or whatever. Uh, and so I think it's just more fun there. I think it uh, also, Lovecraft happens to be a really terrific writer. And so just reading the source material is great fun. And again, you know, uh, I, <laughs> I dodged the bullet uh, at uh, Wizards of the Coast of having to work on the Wheel of Time books. And I dodged the bullet uh, from... Um, uh, what was it? It was um, uh, the the Tristat system guys. Of uh, they offered me the uh, line developership of the Song of Ice and Fire books, and I started reading those. And it's like, well, this is like the Wars and Ro Wars of the Roses, but without the actual part that's interesting about the Wars of the Roses. They just put in some dragons and direwolves, and well, now I don't care. Um, so I yeah, I left that project because again, there's no connection to, to reality and also because Martin is you know he, he's not at his best I think in that sort of long form style I think his his short stories and his horror novels his earlier stuff was considerably better I'm obviously in the remotely small minority uh, commercially but um, you know I don't think it's his prose style necessarily that gets people coming back and back to those novels I think it's just the unfolding of the dire horrible action and people just want to know you know what yeah. beloved character is going to get it in the neck next uh, not so much, oh, I really want to reread that paragraph because it was stellar. But with Lovecraft, you can reread that paragraph for decades, and you're noticing things that he does with parallelism. You're noticing things that he does with tone. You're noticing, once you start reading him as uh, as describing the, the, the story as an architect describes a house, right? Lovecraft was a giant architecture fan. But once you recognize that and you recognize that that's part of how he writes stories, how he constructs stories, you have a new way to read Lovecraft. It's genuinely literature, I think, in the sense that you can always come back to it. You can always find something new in it, whereas there's tons of, of uh, perfectly good books that I reread all the time, but it's just, you know, like uh, taking a, a hit of heroin. It's not actually because it's an intellectual challenge. It's because I enjoy, you know, going back to that, you know, uh, time and place or that, that spaceship or whatever and, and seeing, you know, seeing it happen all over again. But with Lovecraft, you genuinely re-engage with the prose and you re-engage with the philosophy. And so that's just great fun, you know, by itself. And the mythos is hugely gameable in a way that other fictional settings aren't yeah. because the characters are so weak, right? I mean, Henry Armitage is probably the strongest character in the whole mythos yeah. or in Lovecraft's Ovra, and he is, he's no Hamlet, right? He's no Raskolnikov. <laughs> um, but the, the thing is, he's not even Conan, right? And the, the thing about a Hyborian Age game is without Conan, it always feels a little empty. Like, you're always going, oh, I wonder what Conan is doing. Is he having more fun than us? I'll bet he is. But 
if you're in the Lovecraft universe, you know you're having a more interesting personal story than uh, Nathaniel Wingate Peasley because you're reacting to it in a human way. And Lovecraft did not value characterization. He thought characterization was a waste of time in weird fiction. Uh, and you can say he's right or he's wrong. Obviously, his weird fiction he was right for, maybe not for everybody. Yeah. Um, but because the characters are such ciphers, you can put your player characters into those roles and into those spaces in a way that you can't yeah. do if you're like, oh, I'm the other consulting detective besides Sherlock Holmes. Or, you know, I'm the yeah. other starship captain besides Kirk and Picard. You know, and I, I did two Star Trek games in a row, and we knew that everyone who played it you know, had to get over Kirk Flinch or Picard Flinch yeah. or later on Cisco Flinch, right? Because they were like, oh, well, this is Deep Space Nine, but it's not really Deep Space Nine because I'm not Cisco. And even if they are playing Cisco, they're not playing him the way that, you know, Avery Brooks played Cisco, like a crazed, drunken Shakespearean. They're doing it how <laughs> they do it. But with Lovecraft, you don't have to worry, oh, am I doing justice to Herbert West? Herbert West is a cartoon. Do whatever you want to Herbert West. No one cares. Yeah. You know, it's now that you've explained it that way, you know, I, I look back at uh, the Dunwich Horror and, you know, the Armitage and, and the other professors show up. They do some stuff, and uh, that's pretty much it. You know, okay. they're... Uh, that wasn't the importance of the story. It was the journey of the Waitley family and how the Dunwich Horror came to be. And the uh, sort of um, invert theology that he's doing, where he's simultaneously yeah. uh, working in Arthur Machen's you know, universe, but he's also parodying and travestying everything that Machen believed was the most important, because for Lovecraft, the nihilism was the most important. And sure. to write a nihilist Machen story by itself is impossible, and Lovecraft did it, and he did it great. <laughs> See, so it's, and, uh, it's just a it, it's just an amazing piece of work on a lot of levels, on a whole ton of levels, as well as just the physical. You know, the quality of the prose is great. That's one of the best first lines in in weird fiction, right? Is um uh, when a man takes the wrong fork in the road at Dean's Corners, he later discovers he was on the road to Dunwich. It's like, oh, the wrong fork <laughs> in the road. That's so perfect. Yep. And um uh, and, and uh, but you know Armitage, like I say, he's the closest thing there is in a, in Lovecraft to a character with you know personality because yeah. he's got two whole dimensions to him. But you know he's just not you know he's he's not even James Bond, right? He's just no. emptier than that. And so you know you you run the risk you know maybe of of worrying about Armitage, and so we sort of uh, faced that head on when we did the Armitage inquiry uh, campaign frame in Trail of Cthulhu, where. Armitage is sort of this doddering, ancient, um, uh, retired guy who can't go out and fight monsters anymore because he's like 80 or something in yeah. continuity by this time. Um, so you, you, he, he sends you out. And so you're like, oh, I know where Armitage is. He's back in the library taking his you know, uh, arthritis medicine. That's, that's why he's not out here stopping the thought because he'll literally fall apart. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, even in, in Dunwich Horror, he... You know, going through going through the diary and everything, he's he's falling apart <laughs> there. Yeah, mentally. He nearly kills himself decoding the diary. Yeah, another great mocking touch, right? That the notion that the diary is actually poisonous and toxic and and damages yeah. you from it's the closest there is in Lovecraft to the thing that people think is in Lovecraft of a book that will injure you by reading it. Yeah, you know, with, with love, that doesn't happen. Right? You don't read the book and then you know your face melts off. It's not the arc with the Nazis. Sure. Um, what happens is you read the book and then later you see something. You're like, oh crap, that crazy mythology was real. Now I, now my whole worldview is turned upside down. Yeah. Um, but uh, 
but with you know reading the diary, the the, the Whatley diary is is almost you know, crippling to to Armitage, and he nearly kills himself deciphering it. So it's a it's a very interesting story in a lot of ways, and I think then that's because Machen did believe that there were books that would injure you. Machen believed in writing that was pernicious and evil and wrong, and so for Lovecraft to do a proper Machen story, there had to be a, a thing that was like that. And looking at you know, and and, and we're kind of straying off. Just just <laughs> well, touch. We're really straying off. <laughs> well, I mean, but we're still. I mean, Trail of Cthulhu is still yeah, right, a yeah. project that you're part of. Um, but oh, yeah. uh, the whole, you know, in in Chaosium, the, the the sanity mechanic and knowing things that you shouldn't know or man wasn't meant to know, mm-hmm. you know, wearing you down, grinding you down, and can ultimately destroy you. Just is is such a wonderful mechanic, I think. Yeah, it's one of the greatest mechanical decisions ever made in the history of role-playing. It's one of the reasons that Sandy Peterson will always be a legend in in game design is because he came up with the reverse of a power fantasy as the way to drive that story, the the notion of the death spiral uh, of of sanity. And, you know, I I, I tried to sort of... um, uh, do obeisance to that in Trail of Cthulhu where you can play in the purest mode or the pulp mode, and in the pulp mode is like regular Call of Cthulhu, uh, yeah. but in the purest mode, you never get sanity back. It, it just always oh stays gone. Okay. So, uh, you, uh, you, you know, you, we separate it into two things. There's stability and sanity, so stability is what keeps you together when you're facing a monster. Sure. Sanity is how connected you are to the human reality of the world. And as your sanity dwindles, the more you realize the human reality is wrong, it drains away. You're gone. It's, it's, that's it. And that was in uh, Sandy's first draft of Call of Cthulhu, that, that rule. And at Chaosium, they said, well, that's terrible. No one will play our game because it will be too bleak and horrible. And so they <laughs> made him put in rules for healing your sanity back. Yeah. Uh, and so I just said, well, I'm going to go back to Sandy's zeroth draft and sneak it into something and see if people play that way. And you know we've we've had a lot of really successful purist scenarios get published, and we've had a lot of people who play it that way. So I'm I'm happy to sort of be letting people play a Sandy Peterson mechanic, even if I have to design it myself. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. That is wonderful. Um, with um, Dracula dossier, we spoke about that earlier. <clears throat> it was a uh, Kickstarter funded project. Mm-hmm. With yeah. In the time that you've been you know, a game designer and, and, and continue to do so, what do you think of Kickstarter? Do you think it's been a, a good thing for the, uh, for the gaming community, or do you think it, it complicates things? Well, I, I should preface this by saying I don't own a retail store. And I think sure. if I own a retail, retail store, then I might have a different opinion, okay. but, or at least a more nuanced opinion. But as a game designer, it's an unalloyed good because it provides immediate contact between me and my audience. Sure. Right? I can say to someone, hey, do you want me to nearly kill myself for two years writing about Dracula? And they say, yeah, we'd love to see that. As opposed to me saying, gosh, I hope if I, really kill my, if I nearly kill myself for two years writing about Dracula, I can sell it. Which I'm going to say just right out, I don't work on a project for two years if I can't sell it. Um, sure. So the fact that I was able to go to the audience and Pelgrane was able to go to the audience and say, do you guys want this? What do you want to see? Do you want these things that can go along with it? And then they respond as enthusiastically as they did. That gave the whole creative team sort of the impetus to go forward and, and work on the project. And it also lets us tailor a project to an audience. And then as a solo creator, 
someone like um, uh, you know uh, Jason Morningstar doing Night Witches, the game about playing female uh, biplane pilots in World War II. That's not necessarily a thing that a lot of people are going to buy, but Jason Morningstar, because he can go on Kickstarter, can get the four thousand people or whatever the number is. Sure. The five hundred. I don't know what the number is because I haven't checked the the number of backers. I know I backed it, but. Um, He'll be able to say, well, I've been able to hand sell it to those 900 people, and no game store in the world is going to stock that in depth, because why would you? What are the odds that you live in the same town as one of the people who wants to play a female uh, biplane pilot in World War II? Uh, but Jason can find those people, and so you can target that audience. And so between the, you know, the ability to raise capital ahead of time, which is another sort of leveragey advantage, but just in terms of, of a creative opening, um, you can write a game about anything in theory, and as, assuming you can sell it, and assuming you can find the audience that wants to buy it, yeah, you can produce more games, and I think more games by and large is good, and more games that people want is so much better. I don't know if you guys were around in the late 90s, uh, right, or the mid-90s, right before the card game boom happened, yep. and after White Wolf had come out, and everyone was like, well, I can, I can Photoshop art, I have a better skill system than that. I can do my game. And so it was all the guys who wanted to do D&D, but it like, no, our D&D is better than D&D. And now it was all the guys who wanted to do Vampire, and our Vampire is better than your Vampire, and all Shadowrun, but it's better than Shadowrun. It was just horrible. You'd walk around Gen Con and see these poor guys that had mortgaged their house or something to print 5,000 copies of books, and it's, it's just taking up space in their garage and being a fire hazard, and no one wants it because, of course, they don't want their pretend Shadowrun. They want to get a real Shadowrun. Um, sure. And it's just awful. And every you know, once out of a blue moon, someone would would hit a a, a nerve or, or do a really great job and and move forward with it. But so many people wasted so much time and money trying to produce and guess what people want with a Kickstarter. You put it up, and if no one wants it, you'll find out before you've killed yourself, or at least before you've paid the printer, which is yeah. you know the real you know rubber hits the road part. Now again, retailers may look at it and say, well, you're just you know. Uh, siphoning off all the alpha gamers uh, and I'm sure that there's some degree of, of, uh, of truth to that but on the other hand by creating games people want to play you're reinforcing that game habit you're you're making more alpha gamers possibly um, I think probably you know um, uh, Glenn has more to say about that than I do but um, yeah as, as far as as far as Kickstarter goes I think any game store owner that is that can look at it without just simply of, of it's the ones who, who say it's it's stealing all the alpha gamers, I, I feel that's the same way as, as like uh, the AMA and all those all the, and, and the movie studio is saying, well, pirates are destroying our industry. They're just you know people are downloading the, downloading the movies that we spent you know five hundred million dollars and we're only making a billion. The thing is is that now they're not to equate it to piracy, but it's the no, fact that we're actually selling a game. It's like the yes, opposite. Of selling, but it's it's the fact that that they talk about how you know it's it's there's this there's this one group out there that's destroying them when it's really not um, because in Kickstarter well there is but it's Games Workshop well yes um, in, with <laughs> Kickstarter it's there's I mean I probably have at least thirty or forty titles in my store that were Kickstarted yeah um, so that's thirty or forty games I wouldn't otherwise have in my store mm-hmm. um, yeah we we don't get to we don't get to be the first people to have the game but you know what? That's not everyone who's going to buy it. If if every game stops selling after the Kickstarter, some companies would be like, "Well, okay, we'll do this one thing." But a lot of companies are like, "Well, if I can get six thousand people to back it on Kickstarter, 
then distributors start saying, okay, yeah, we'll take copies because that's yeah. where a lot of that comes yeah. in. Is then because you're you know, building the audience for it. You're, you're creating the audience. Both, so if, something if that they is, say, has been impossible you know, uh, virtually until now. Yeah, and then so, also you, know, you can look at the Kickstarter campaign, and you'll be able to see how that game was marketed, and so you'll know how to sell it better, maybe. Now, right? Yes, exactly. Um, and and there are some, uh, or at least know how I think it. It's been more more with, with some of the companies <laughs> now. With some of the companies that the the established companies that run these will do retailer levels as well. Yeah, we had a retailer and, level for Dracula Dots. Yeah. Yeah, and I wish I had known about that when when it was out because I would have definitely jumped all over. Well, oh, as I say, if everyone just paid attention to everything I say, <laughs> have a happier, better life. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, it's we we we. I I I am a full supporter of Kickstarter. I, there was there was a brief time where I'm like, ah, oh, but you know, all these big companies in there, but I'm like, you know. It's it's knowing more about the industry as I do now from when I from, from when I did four or five years ago, I know that you know a lot of the big game companies they still don't have you know fifty grand just lying around waiting no. to take a chance on something. I mean, yeah, cash flow has always been the the, the, the the nightmare monster in the closet of of virtually every game company that doesn't make a a, a good CCG, um, uh, because you can't count on cash flow outside of release months. And yep. that's just a real, real problem. Um, uh, 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 George Vasilakos, who runs Eden Studios, has a game store in oh. Albany, New York, called Zombie Planet, um, and that solves his cash flow problem, and it also solves his marketing problem. Sure. He thinks, <laughs> you know, how do I sell this game to gamers? He sees gamers all day who don't want to buy his game. He's like, oh, right, that's a terrible idea. I shouldn't market it. I shouldn't produce it. I should produce something that does sell. And so he's, if I were a mid-tier game company by myself, which fate, thank God, I've avoided, um, that would be a really tempting thing to do. Would be to try and, you know, combine it with a game store in some fashion. Admittedly, George is just really, really good at running game stores, so it probably would blow up on the uh, landing pad if I tried it. But I think that it's it's interesting that he's found a way to, you know, have cash flow uh, and also have a lot of other things that a, that a mid-tier game company needs. Um, and then, you know, also provide a good service to the people of Albany. So good for you, George. And we we talked a little bit earlier about uh, Gumshoe, and what would you say if you were to talk to somebody who may have played uh, an RPG system or two, and you wanted to talk to them about Gumshoe? What what separates Gumshoe uh, from like a system like say D twenty or something like that? Um, what 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 is the point that it really shines? Would you say? Well, the uh, gumshoe. The point of gumshoe is that it is optimized for solving mysteries, and mysteries can be as broad as what's going on on this planet, like Ash and Stars. They can be as narrow as uh, where's this sniper coming from, like in Knights Black Agents, or they can be as involute as what uh, horrible alien monstrosity underlies creation um, in Trail of Cthulhu. But what they do is they make solving mysteries. Uh, a point of progress into the story, not a, another delay before you get to the story. Because in Gumshoe, you never fail to find a clue, right? If something is a clue that will move you into the story, you automatically find it. That's just the rule. Yeah. Because if you look at, you know, virtually every mystery, what, what novel, TV, movie, whatever it is, they never show the detective look and say, well, I guess I didn't find anything. <laughs> Fade to black. Yeah. Right, fade to black. It's because that would end the movie, or at the worst, it would just waste a chapter of the novel, 
right? And even in Mysteries with a Ton of Red Herrings, the detective is like, he's finding something. He's finding out eventually that this guy's a red herring. Now, most players don't have the patience to sit through, you know, even five red herrings, uh, to quote Dorothy Sayers. But, you know, you're still finding things out. Peter Whimsy doesn't show up to the door and say, hey, I wonder if I could talk to you about your wife. And they say, go away, Peter Whimsy. He's like, well, there you go. That, that was it. Sorry um, about you. He still, he still gets the Have a good one. Um, uh, <laughs> now, you, you still find the clue, right? On CSI, when they do all the luminol on the walls, they don't then say, well, I guess there was no blood spatter. There was no fingerprint. No, they find something. And then that goes to the, the, you know, the dude who takes his glasses off and excitement happens, right? Um, <laughs> that's what moves you into the story is finding out the answer, finding out the clue. And, or finding the clue, and then the story is how do you put those clues together, and once you put them together, what new danger does it lead you into, or what new solution does it offer? Um, in uh, Nice Black Agents, the, the um, sort of the thriller economy is uh, information leads you into danger, uh, surviving danger gets you more information. Sure. Right? And okay. in Trail of Cthulhu, um, information is, uh, is poisonous, but you have to ingest enough to understand the bigger poison, right? In Ash and Stars, information lets you uh, literally solve a, sci a scientific or a, or a cultural mystery, right? An anthropological or, or, or techn uh, technological mystery. And so all of those, you know, um, procedural space show, um, a, a spy thriller, Lovecraft, you don't think of, them, of any of them when you ask, are these mystery games? But they're all mystery games because they're all about finding information to get to a, a set point. And once you have that insight, uh, I think a gumshoe game moves you through your play space more effectively and more interestingly than saying, okay, um, roll to see if you spotted the, the elf footprints. No? Cricket, cricket, roll yeah. Roll elf lore to see if you recognize the packets of elf crisps they left behind. Didn't make that either. Oh, man, if you don't find the elves, this is going to be a long, boring adventure. Yeah. And uh, you um, roll spot hidden to see if you see the elf who's still here napping. No, really? Well, he is an elf. I mean, the thing is, all that's doing is just frustrating you. And, and to, all right, so it's simulating reality, but you're not playing this game to simulate reality. You're playing this game yeah. because a story is going to happen at some point. Um, something. And it's such a momentum killer fun, too. Right? Yeah. yeah, and so the. Um, there, there are ways around it. Uh, plenty of GMs have, have sort of house ruled ways around it. Uh, Robin is just the guy who said, well, I'm just going to write down your house rule and put it in the front of the book, and then everyone can play that way. Won't that be great? And so that was the, the insight of Gumshoe, is that investigative games don't have to stop if you didn't find the clue. They can actually uh, give you the clue, because that wasn't the hard part. The hard part is putting the clues together and making sense of it in time uh, to save a life or to get out of Vienna or to find the Shoggoth before it breeds or whatever it is. And then when you get to the Shoggoth or the vampires in Vienna or whatever it is, you still have to fight the thing, right? Yeah. You, you have an exciting, you know, uh, combat, just like we all love in, in gaming or whatever it is. Uh, and so that, I think, is is sort of the, the key inside of Gumshoe. And Gumshoe is not a, a better game than, than other games just of its own. It's optimized for a thing, right? It's like if you yeah. say, what kind of car do you want? Do you want a Maserati or a Jeep? It's like, well... Am I going to be driving along the corniches on the you know coast of France, or am I going to be driving into the woods? Because my answer changes radically, yep. right? Um, yep. And th it's two different things that are engineered for the same purpose, even though they both have four wheels and an engine. And I think in a lot of cases, role-playing games can be engineered for specific 
uh, experiences and specific kinds of handling. And Gumshoe is engineered for that kind of handling. And then Robin and I and Kevin Culp have written games that, you know, play into its strengths as opposed to writing a game saying, gosh, I, I hope our rule system works. Um, we just, we know what the rule system can do. We write games around that. And sure. uh, and that's sort of the, the, the insight such as it is of Gumshoe. And of course, you can Gumshoe anything. You could say, all right, I'm playing D20 and we just never fail a skill check if it's going to get us more information, right? Yeah. So you never fail your tracking check, your dungeoneering check. You may fail it if that makes the game more interesting, right? If the, the tracking check is actually, did you get surprise on the elk people or not? But, you know, the um, if the tracking is just, can you follow them to the actual combat? Then, yeah, you make it and everyone's happy. So it's not like Gumshoe is, is anything just gigantic and revolutionary. You can take it and use it in any game you're playing already. But we happen to think that it works really, really well for the games that we've done because those games are optimized to use that mechanic and to make the most of it and to sort of play off that and uh, produce other kinds of uh, knock-on effects uh, once you start understanding that you're using story economy as opposed to real world, you know, counting bullets or leaders of blood. Yeah. That opens up a lot of different sorts of uh, game design space, I think. Sure. No, I... Yeah, nothing is worse than killing the momentum of the game because you can't move forward until you find the thing. Well, that's um, uh, certainly what we've uh, come to believe at Pograin. Um, yeah, and, and and from what I've seen with Gumshoe and what you're telling me, I've, I, I, I'm probably going to buy the system tomorrow and and then try to convince some other folks to play it because great, that great. that's right up my alley. Let me recommend Nice Black Agents because there's a hell of a <laughs> campaign coming out for it. <laughs> I, you know, and with when you talked about Dracula's dossier, that blows me away. That that level of you know the the best lies are are wedged between two truths kind of approach to everything, and mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm such a firm believer in 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 that whole philosophy that th- this is totally up my alley. So I, yeah, I will be buying that tomorrow. Uh, Great. Uh, you know what? Um, in in speaking of in creating settings around like Gumshoe or things like that, what kind of recommendations would you make to somebody who? is interested in maybe maybe not just creating their own role-playing game system or designing their own, but creating a, a, a system, a setting around a system, a pre-existing system like Gumshoe. What kind of recommendations would you, would you try, would you make to somebody who, who would be interested in that? Well, I mean, there's, there's sort of two ways to answer that. There's sort of the practical way. Uh, make sure that the system you're uh, making things up for already has an installed user base. Yeah. Right. So okay. when I did uh, Day After Ragnarok, I, I did it wrong because I did it for Savage Worlds thinking, well, Savage Worlds really plays the way that I think in my head Day After Ragnarok plays. And I'll just do it as Savage Worlds and because I know Shane Hensley, he was nice and he let me have the license for, you know, nothing. And so I put together Day After Ragnarok and I released it, or rather Hal released it, and uh, Hal Mangold, my publisher. Um, and it turned out Savage Worlds had a huge, really active, really positive player base. But I, I stumbled backward into that knowledge because I didn't know. Oh, okay. And I discovered that after releasing Day After Ragnarok that everyone was just really, really enthused about new Savage World stuff. But I didn't think of that when I, when I did it. But if I were giving advice to people now, I would say, look online, look who's got a user base that is always uh, talking about their game and ideally talking in a positive way instead of bitching about it, um, <laughs> then write for those people. And and if you can grok the mechanics well enough to, to sort of figure out what kind of stories those are best for telling, 
then tell those stories in your in your setting. So Fate is another game uh, system that's got huge numbers of players. Pathfinder, obviously, has got huge numbers of players. Um, and both of those, coincidentally, have basically free uh, uh, systems. You don't have to license. You don't pay for the license, which is my second piece of advice. So there should be lots of people who play it, and you should ideally not have to shell out for a license because you don't need that headache. Um, once you've done that, then look at the game system you've decided to play with and say, what kind of problems does this solve? What kind of stories does this open up? What kind of world am I telling if I'm telling it in uh, basic role-playing versus a world that I'm telling if I'm telling it in gumshoe versus a world that I'm telling it if I'm telling it in fate? And maybe all you want to do is just say, I'm going to adapt this uh, public domain story of schooner fights that no one has ever done before, and I think schooner fighting is the next... Um, uh, uh, X-Wings, and I'm going to make a schooner fighting game. And maybe you think any of those games might be a good schooner fighting game, and you with Fate, it's like, oh, what the captain really hates the other captain, and so we have to you know, uh, build aspects back and forth, and so your um, schooner fighting becomes really personal, and if it's BRP, your schooner fighting becomes very you know, target, you know, hit location, and, and lots of rolling of dice, and fun things like that, and it becomes a more tactical game. And with Gumshoe, the schooner fighting game is all about um, solving the problems inherent in sea stories. Right, you know, how do we get the weather gauge? How do we um, find out why he's off this coast? How do we figure out what is in this other captain's mind? And it becomes more of a sort of a, a, a psychological game uh, if you do it for Gumption. If you do it for Savage Worlds, it's just cannons, swords. What the hell? It's schooner fighting. Get to get to killing. Um, and each of those is going to make its own schooner fighting game, and those are not going to resemble each other uh, on the table. But whatever part of the books or the source material you, you or you, the world in your head, if you're making it up out of whole cloth, whatever it feels most like, maybe you want to point it towards the game system that plays that way. Yeah. Right. So I guess that that's sort of my 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 advice is to then you know look at what you the, the list of things of ideas you have in your head, and if one of them matches with a game system that's already out there and is being uh, well played and well supported, write it for that. Knock yourself out. Go crazy. Sure. Then, in terms of sort of the aesthetic or, or formalist question, uh, just make sure that when you design a setting that you always have a through line, right? You have a central conflict, you have a central story, you have a central thing that everything always points back to. So that if you wind up, you know, off in the edges of the, of the setting, writing something that only you care about, you'll say, oh, right, that doesn't actually speak to my through line. That doesn't speak to my contest. That doesn't. That's not part of what the real story of this world is. I'm just going to take that out. Maybe leave it for a supplement that can be about that thing. Okay. Uh, like Nice Black Agents, for example, or not Nice Black Agents. Actually, Nice Black Agents is a different story. But uh, Day After Ragnarok. Um, once I came with the idea, this is the Hyborian Age after World War II, and I wrote everything that didn't feel like Conan, everything that didn't feel like the Hyborian Age, like Robert E. Howard, got cut out. Right. If if that part of the world didn't feel like Robert E. Howard, I'm not going to focus on it. Okay. But I focus into the, the the sort of sensation of of the game that I want to 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 play, and then um, to a lesser extent because it's a it's the whole world. The 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 British half of the world is is more uh, Professor Quatermass than it is uh, <laughs> Conan the Barbarian. So the British have to be a little more of that thin red line. Uh, James Bond, Professor Quatermass, one Britisher is all that stands between us and destruction type um, story that the British produced in the desperate, you know, after effect of losing their empire um, to convince themselves they were still relevant for a while. And um, th that made really great source material and really great stories. So since I wrote a world where it was actually literally true, I could tell those stories. But again, stories that aren't about that kind of in individual heroism, 
don't fit. So there aren't any sh big shooting wars going on in the world, right? Sure. It has to be a, a world of Cold War spies. It has to be a world of weird science to give the Quatermass guys something to do. Okay, what kind of weird science have I got? Well, I've just got a giant alien snake. Let's pull pieces out of that and make it weird biotech. And so every question that I answer, it may seem unrelated, but it all points back to the central thread or the central through line of the setting. And what that means is I don't have to sit there and go, gosh, I wonder what's going on in Patagonia. It's like, well, is it going to be weird science or is it going to be uh, uh, Conan the Barbarian stuff? And if it's neither, then just don't write about it. Sure. Because that's what the world is about. Is It's about those things. Okay. And so that's my advice is don't try and build your setting, you know, uh, like you're writing an encyclopedia or even a history book. Build your setting like you're doing a story Bible for a TV show or for, you know, better yet, a comic book. Something that's going to be really, really tightly focused. Sure. Um, and present a, a world where the kinds of stories you want to happen are the kinds of stories that people will tell. Because otherwise, they'll think that they can walk out on the thin ice that you've left there because you felt like you had to describe something, and they fall through it. Because it turns out the stories that they want to tell are no good there. Or you don't, you didn't provide enough material, or it doesn't actually fit. And I, I think that that just angers people and, and disengages them. Whereas if you've got a fundamental story that you can tell in that world, people will want to tell that. I mean, if you look at, I, I think I probably took a lot of that away from uh, knowing John Zinzer and John Wick when they were doing L5R. You know, so much of that game is just samurai stories. It's all samurais. It's all Yojimbo. Sure. If it didn't happen yep. in a Chambara movie, it's not going to happen in uh, L5R. And that sort of aesthetic choice to do that and to only tell as much of Japan as you, pretend Japan as you need to get back to Chambara stories, that was a really strong editorial decision and a really strong line decision. And they kind of got away from it a little bit as Rokugan sort of expanded out from under them. Mm -hmm. But yeah. um, but obviously it's still a really strong workable setting in a way that, say, the Traveler Imperium stopped being after they ended the frontier because they forgot, oh, that was the big part of our story was the frontier. Uh, that was That's on us. We screwed that up. So... I mean, look at the kind of stories you, you think your, story, your, your game is about and, and make sure that your setting contains those stories and not a bunch of other stupid stories. Sure. And uh, we um, had the opportunity to, to speak with author uh, Patrick Rothfuss, and uh, we, we kind of talked about the uh, if he were to take his novels and put them into... Uh, have a game system uh, that would service and and be true to what his books were. You know, he he said pretty much the same thing that, you know, he you couldn't do his books in say Pathfinder or Dungeons and Dragons. It you know be, it, it had to be you know I think he kind of settled on uh, on a fate uh, on fate being something that would would work well because the type of story did not fit with. The mechanics of the system. So yeah, yeah that it definitely definitely rings true. Trying to hammer that square peg into the round hole is just going to leave everybody frustrated, and it's not going to flow very well yeah. at all. So I mean, D and D and Pathfinder are great engines for telling D and D and Pathfinder type stories, right? They're yeah. super good for stories where you kick an open kick open a door, and there's guys in a room, and you stab them. It's a great engine for that. It's really, really good for that. And when you read, say, you know, an R.A. Salvatore novel or the Dragonlance stuff, that feels like D&D. &D, and you say, yeah, I, I can see how D&D &D works in that. That's a D&D-E type world. Yep. Um, it's just that not everything is going to work that way. If you try, Even if you try and take stuff that, um, that uh, Gary and Dave were using as their inspiration, you try and play Three Hearts and Three Lions as D&D, &D, you'll just be a sad, lonely person <laughs> because it won't work. 
Sure. Right? Okay. No, I, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't, uh, couldn't imagine it being any, any other way. Uh, and, you know, being the person that's trying to construct a story, the, the amount of hair pulling that you'd end up doing trying to make a mechanic work you know, in, in, in a system that is just not really built for is just, you know, yeah. uh, it, it, it's a colossal waste of time. And, you know, you're trying to find that, that right system that, that works for the story you're trying to tell is. And even if you luck into discovering it, you have to then convince all of the players who, if they're yeah. playing in the game of, of this thing, at least care about it, um, or they're really nice, which is great. And so buy the pizza for those guys. Um, yeah. But uh, you're trying to convince them that you're right. And they're like, yeah. no, 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 Gandalf doesn't work that way. Gandalf works this way. And, you know, he's 20th level. He's not 5th level. What are you, insane? <laughs> and so there's, you know, all kinds of, but he's a Valar. He's a whole different thing. And so you wind up spending the whole time knocking heads and disagreeing about the setting as opposed to jointly celebrating the setting for what it's worth. Sure. And, you know, I'm generally of the opinion that we have plenty of, of game systems as it is, yeah. but I can understand that if you've got, say, the, you know, the One Ring uh, the Tolkien license or you've got the uh, John Carter license, it might be worth, you know, looking and saying, how do I make this game match this uh, world? Right, and even when we do gumshoe, we we don't just do the same gumshoe rules over and over and over again. We say, how do I make, uh, you know, this investigative game feel like a thriller? How do I make it feel like a a, a, a serial uh, space exploration game? How do I make it feel like, um, uh, whatever it happens to be? And so those are, uh, th those are sort of the decisions that we make even within the cons constraints of one game system. So I can understand people. Uh, I, I I recommend, in fact, that people look at what other kinds of game systems can apply to your uh, to your story before you start telling it, not during? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I did get a chance to, and I only had time to briefly listen to a little bit of your Ken and Robin talk about stuff, which I think is a great title for a podcast, by the way. That's Robin. Um, As with all of the things that work about that podcast, it was Robin's idea. So, <laughs> <laughs> please pass that on because uh, I, uh, it's such a great, and I like the graphic too for for the show. Um, you know, one of well, the that's things John Cavalic did that. So okay, we are uh, fortunate in our. I am fortunate in knowing vastly more talented people who let me put my name on their things. <laughs> That's a good place to be. That, yeah, that really no, it, it beats working. I, I promise you. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that I noticed, and I just got to listen to a snippet of episode one forty-seven. Um, I would encourage people to to listen to it, uh, just because of well, one, the vast knowledge that that you and Robin both have about the industry, but two, uh, you started to talk about the narrative of. Of how to make your game better by like you know, describing a room, I think was the, you know, it, being especially somebody who may not have a whole lot of confidence in in running a, a game per se, or uh, maybe have never done it at all and are very interested. It sounds like you guys cover topics that can help people be. Uh, better storytellers, tell a better story and keep people, uh, get them engaged in the game. Um, what what kind of experience have you had with, I mean, you got 147 episodes under your belt. How, I guess, one, how did it come about? And two, um, what are some of the, the, the topics that you, that you guys tend to cover in your podcast? Well, the topic came about because Robin um, looked at the Ennies and said, there's an any category that I am not eligible for. <laughs> 
that can't stand. <laughs> and he said, hey, Ken, how about you and I just go out and get ourselves some free Ennies? And it was like, well, all right, I kind of like the sound of that. And uh, also, it's an excuse to talk to Robin for an hour every week, which uh, I totally recommend. Um, uh, not that you can, haha, because I have that job. <laughs> well, but, at least we um, get to listen in. But Robin is, is one of my one of my best friends, and I when I just started out, I was just a monstrous, raving Robin Laws fanboy, uh, which is hilarious um, and still true. But um, Robin and I get along really, really well, and so I think that comes across in the in the in the podcast. Is it's fun to it's fun to talk to Robin. Robin thinks it's fun to talk to me. Other people think it's fun to listen to Robin and I talk, and the that's that's where the idea came from is that if Ken and Robin talk about stuff, people will want to listen to it. Sure. And uh, that's that seems to have worked out pretty well uh, for us so far. Uh, the things we talk about, every episode, there's going to be uh, one installment of uh, The Gaming Hut, which is where we give sort of, to the extent that we give anything that's useful, this is useful, uh, oftentimes play-tested, and that Robin and I have both been GMs for forever, um, how to how to make your game better, and it might be a world building thing. It might be a you know, like you say, a, a technique at the table that you can use. It might be about pacing, or it might be about whatever. And so, every episode, there's going to be something about gaming, and it's going to be really gaming focused and, and straight up gaming focused. And then there's usually going to be a, a thing uh, called Ken's Time Machine or Consulting Occultist, which are just Ken wastes everyone's time with nonsense. Uh, <laughs> And Ken's time machine is I go back in time and I fix something or, or change history. And uh, uh, a consulting occultist is Robin has run across something in his in his reading and he's like, Ken, explain this nonsensical thing to me. And so that's what that is. And that's gaming related in that time travel and alternate histories are gaming related and occultism is gaming related. But it's really not. It's just me rapping on like a, like a goofball. Um, and then... We have other segments that just depend on what kind of mood Robin is in when he writes the script that week. So it might be the food hut, or it might be the cinema hut. It might be um, the uh, um, the, uh, the Ask Canon Robin is very popular. People write in. Uh, they they put on the uh, on the message board on the on the website. They say, "Hey, I've got a question," and Robin will pick them out uh, from Olympus, and and we'll do an Ask Canon Robin segment, and that covers a lot of the ground that we can't put whole huts into. Uh, sometimes we have a politics hut if there's an election going on or Rob Ford is being hilarious as he used to be in Toronto. Uh, sometimes we just have, um, you know, one-off huts where we, we talk about something that is uh, in the news or is appealing to both of us at the time. Um, you know, how to write good is one of the things that we do that's sort of focused advice for writers uh, because we're both writers as well as uh, gamers and game designers. Sure. Um, and so there's... And, and also, we're both uh, very Catholic uh, readers, all right? We read a lot of different kinds of stuff that isn't just, you know, game books and game materials or even genre fiction. And so there's a degree of maybe helping people go a little bit outside their comfort zone if they're thinking, well, I, I like science fiction, but I don't know about mysteries, or I like mysteries, but I don't know about historicals, or I like historicals, but I don't know about drama and, and literature. And so we sort of, you know, play around with that with how to write good, and we have a thing called Recommendation Engine where we just talk about things we like that we didn't want to build a whole hut around. Um, so it, it's sort of just Robin and I, uh, you know, back and forth thing, but we try and keep at least half the program somewhat useful and focused, and the other half is just me rabbiting on like a goof. So that seems to be a, a pretty good combo so far. People seem to like it. The 150th episode, which will drop on Friday, I don't know when this is dropping, but it either has dropped or will drop 
shortly is our 150th episode, so it's our third year anniversary episode, oh, and it will be all lightning round episode, which turns out to be really fun to do because we can answer the questions briefly and move on, um, uh, as opposed to trying to, you know, wring 15 minutes of juice out of one lemon, which sure. sometimes <laughs> it's a little harder than others. Um, you know, Robin will ask me about some historical event. It's like, nope, that's what happened. Can't fix it. It's just the way the cake was baked. Well, we have nine more minutes, Ken, so you'd better come up with something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, no, that's really cool. Yeah, but, but I mean, that's that's basically what it is. So if you've enjoyed listening to me yammer on on this podcast, and God forbid, um, just go back and you can hear 150 more hours of me doing it, uh, only with Robin. So that, that'll be a little bonus for you. No, that's wonderful. Cool. I need someone to listen to on the Dreads Gen Con. <laughs> yes. Oh, there was... We, we get... Um, we, we get a guy, uh, I forget what year that was, it was maybe last year, um, who shows up and he's there and he's got his son. His son is like 12 or 13, you know, so just that perfect age to start being a gamer, uh, a really hardcore gamer that we love. And um, he's like, uh, my, my boy and I listened to your podcast for the whole eight-hour drive to Gen Con. And I was like, oh, that poor kid. <laughs> there's no there's no way he enjoyed that. It, just, it was purely, well, I like my dad more than I like jumping out of the car while it's moving. Like, yes, I'll stay. Uh, but it was just it was just awful. I could just see the pain in his eyes. Um, and so, uh, yeah, but no, we, we do get people who listen to it on their commute or whatever. And, you know, I find that when I'm talking in my normal register, people will say, are you Ken Height? Because they, now they recognize my voice, which is deeply strange. It's like a little bit of what Hank Azaria must get, I guess. <laughs> Well, especially you know, as a as a game designer, you're kind of more behind the scenes and setting yeah, things up right. for other people to to tell stories and 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 mm -hmm. use their voices. So I guess that's got to be quite a quite a shifting gears. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, all creative people are egotists, and any creative person who says he isn't is a bad liar. Um, <laughs> no one gets into it. To, uh, no one produces art. No one produces anything to be anonymous about it, right? No one, even the guy who, who builds your IKEA table, is like, "I built that IKEA table." And if you say that's your IKEA table, he'll be like, "Yeah, I built it." And I just put my name on the IKEA tables that I build. Um, so yeah, I mean, any 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 sort of signed production is something that you are are fond of and you want people to like and enjoy. So it's uh, the thing about writing in in general and game writing in particular is it is a kind of an anonymous thing to do, and you're uh, solitary. You're in your little uh, cubicle uh, uh, writing all day, and I get feedback from my cat, uh, of mostly of the form, "Why aren't you feeding me?" and uh, from my wife, which generally comes in one or the other of that same tenor, um, but when the larger audience responds, it's always really, really gratifying. And so finding a new way to attract that sort of attention is actually just more fun. It's not a kind of a different fun. It's just weirder because I'm, I'm not used to uh, people recognizing my voice yet, I sure. guess. Yeah. It's just a strange thing to have. It, it happened at a, I was at a play in Chicago a couple of weeks ago and a guy said, are you Ken Height? It's like, yes, I am. <laughs> And fortunately, he was very nice and, and complimentary about it. He wasn't like, you're wrong about the Battle of Poltava. So that's never happened. But, <laughs> well, but he was like, cool. oh, that's why I'm at this play. It's because you talk about Wildclaw. And so I came to came to their theater. And it's like, yay, the system works. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, uh, I think we're going to uh, end the interview, and uh, I think we're going to wrap things up here. So... Um, 
because I'm looking at the time, and, and, and I think we're running a bit long here, so I apologize for that, Ken. It seems to happen on a lot of podcasts that I go on. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Poor time management on their part, I suspect. Well, I just, yeah, I've, I'll, I'll, I'll shoulder the blame on that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to end a good conversation. So, uh, I think we're, we are going to endeavor to do that, though. Um, uh, hello, my name is. It's uh, something that we do on GalacticNetcast.com. Uh, find the Adventure Party page, and it's an opportunity for you, the listener, to highlight a character that you've enjoyed playing. You know, maybe you've, you've played something from. Uh, uh, from Chaosium. Maybe you played something from Pathfinder and you have a character that you're really, really proud of. Or Gumshoe, for that matter. Perhaps. <laughs> and uh, you want to tell us about it, we'd love to talk about it. Uh, if you go to galacticnetcasts.com and click to the Adventure Party page, uh, we have a link there for Hello My Name Is, and we have a short form for you to fill out, basically just your name, uh, about your character, a little bit about yourself, and yes, we do ask for an email address. No, we do not spam people. We have no interest in starting a newsletter and having you buy our thing because we don't have a thing for you to buy. Uh, the only reason why we ask for your email address is if we use your uh, your information, your character, uh, we talk about that character, we'll email you a certificate that you can frame or I'll maybe put it at the bottom of your birdcage if you so desire. Uh, but we'll email that to you, and basically it just says, hey, we talked about your character, and we really appreciate you taking the time to to, to send that to us so that we could talk about it. So uh, We did get some feedback uh, that I wanted to talk about. Uh, our show, uh, we record it through Google Hangouts, which it first uh, is seen by folks. Uh, visually, and then we convert it to an audio podcast. And we had a viewer on YouTube uh, comment on a couple of our episodes, episode eight with Andy Gilly, um, our uh, this particular. And I didn't write down the name of the person, and I should be beaten for that. I and it was it was such a great and unusual name, and I could have swore I pasted it in. Oh, there we go, uh, Mehoshika. Farood is the name of the user on YouTube. And uh, he commented on episode 8, uh, while I don't, uh, I don't haven't ever played any tabletop RPGs, I enjoy watching your conversations uh, subscribed. And on episode 9, uh, went on to say, uh, that was the episode where we talked about our favorite uh, card and board games and uh, RPGs that we uh, that Glenn and I enjoyed uh, playing. Uh, I recommended that uh, I recommend that when you're mentioning how something looks, that you put an image of it. And you're absolutely right. That's uh, that's my bad. Uh, I'm running the show as I'm as I'm talking, and sometimes I forget to uh, post you know, images so people who are checking things out on YouTube get a chance to see what we're actually talking about. So I do apologize for that. Uh, to make up you for that... I, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm tired of carrying all the weight here. I mean, all you do is organize this, come up with the questions, <laughs> edit it, post it, post it. No. <laughs> it, no. It's, it, you know, it's one of those things where... Uh, to make up for that shortcoming, if I do miss that, uh, we do have show notes that accompany. Uh, I try to go back and, and put them into the YouTube. If not, definitely on the audio version, we have full show notes 
uh, of what happened in the episode and links for you to click so you can see the things that we're talking about if we do forget to put them on YouTube. So I do apologize for that, but there is a way to take a look at that uh, if you didn't get to, if, if I forgot to, to post that on, on YouTube for you to see. So uh, great point, and uh, we will endeavor to, to do a better job of that in the future. So thank you very much for that feedback. I really appreciate that. Uh, going to wrap things up here. Uh, I want to thank Kenneth Height for uh, taking the time to talk to us. I really appreciate that. We had a great discussion with you and talking about RPGs and um, and 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 the podcasts that you do too, and uh, great insight into into RPGs. So I really appreciate that. Um, where could people go? Uh, where would you recommend people go to find out more about you and and your work uh, so that they can can experience it? Well, this is the part where Will Heinmarch tears out uh, his hair because he has held my hand so very, very nicely and tried to get me to set my website up, and it's still sort of living in its nascent universe and is not out. So for now, um, go on Facebook and uh, friend me or whatever it is you do on Facebook and on uh, Twitter, uh, follow me, and I'm relatively omnipresent, or at least I'm relatively consistently present on both, and if I've got a project coming out, oh, believe me, I will plug it there. Um, <laughs> also, of course, listen to the podcast. Robin and I have a segment called Among Our Many Hats, which is a blatant self-promotion as opposed to the concealed self-promotion of the rest of the podcast, uh, so you can uh, pick up on some of the stuff that we're doing by listening to the podcast as well. But yeah, follow. I'm at Kenneth Height on Twitter, and I'm just good old Kenneth Height on Facebook, so go right ahead and uh, friend and, and follow, and you will know at least as much about my life as I do, possibly more. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Uh, and uh, Glenn, I want to thank you for uh, once again joining me on, on this ride and uh, talking about games and gaming, things that we love so much. Where can people go to find out more about you or... Or Mist Runner. Uh, you can just follow me on Twitter at Naked Hobo. You can uh, find me on the YouTubes with my movies at Naked Hobo Productions and the B Movie Bunker. And you can just find me on Facebook, B Movie Bunker and Mist Runner RPG. Nice. All right. Uh, you can find uh, Adventure Party by going to GalacticNetcast.com. That is our home. Uh, you can go there to find out more about the social media outlets that we're a part of. Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, we record this and it uh, shows up on YouTube. That's where you get to see the unedited version uh, after we do the show. Uh, <laughs> we try not to get too wild on, on YouTube. And uh, uh, when uh, when we do the audio version, it's we, we cut out some of the pauses, some of the extra ums. We just try to make a more polished version of the audio uh, product based off of the video version. Uh, we are a little bit behind. I am working. I've actually got somebody helping me to uh, uh, try to help uh, fix how far behind we are. We're about five episodes behind. Uh, as of this point, uh, we'll be six. And we are doing an episode tomorrow with uh, Benjamin Loomis of uh, Cinescape uh, Productions. Uh, uh, sorry, Sirenscape Productions. Um, and that's going to be really uh, kind of an interesting thing, uh, talking about music and gaming. And um, so we are endeavoring to, uh, to, to get things caught back up, uh, should have things back uh, hopefully within the next week here. We should have things caught up again. But uh, you can check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, if you do, please take a moment to uh, give us a review uh, negative, positive, uh, 
Either way, it can help shape the show. Let us know what you guys are interested on us maybe focusing more on or trimming out because it's not quite as interesting as perhaps Glenn and I think it is. Uh, (laughs) Your feedback can really help make a better show, and uh, um, I'm not going to ask you to give us a five-star review. Uh, You review what you think is... uh, It wouldn't kill you. I mean, really. (laughs) Give a five-star review. Come on. Look at it. A five-star review would be awesome. You got the real Enterprise on the wall behind him. You gotta, you gotta <laughs> respect. Oh, it's even better because. Oh, look at that! It has. Uh... Light up photon torpedoes. Yep. That's pretty boss. <laughs> That's five stars right there. See, I'd boom. Say. Yeah. <laughs> and a glowing review from Kenneth Height. Uh, yes. How could I? How could I possibly lose there? So uh, just let us know what you think. Uh, we'd really appreciate that. Uh, we enjoy uh, engaging with you guys and letting you know how much we appreciate you taking the time out of your day or evening to uh, to listen to us and having us uh, join your day. So uh, you can leave us feedback by emailing galacticnetcasts at gmail.com. <clears throat> we also have a number that you can contact us at, uh, either by uh, leaving us a voice message or you can text us at this number. That number is 805-328-3966. Again, 805-328-3966. And you can leave us a, like I said, a a voice message or you can text us. You can also go to galacticnetcasts.com and we use WordPress for our site and we have a really cool plugin where if you click it and the link to it is uh, this, this red box that's off to the right-hand side. If you have a microphone attached to your computer, you can actually uh, leave a voice message directly on your computer, and then it just emails to us, and uh, we can get your feedback uh, all instant-like, as the interwebs is so uh, good at doing. So thank you very much for joining us on the Adventure Party. Uh, may your characters never die, and your adventures always be epic. Good night. You have been listening to a presentation of GalacticNetcasts.com. For more about the show you just listened to, including how to subscribe, give us feedback, links to our social feeds, and more, please visit www.GalacticNetcasts.com.